Thanks for tuning in to the ISEF podcast. This episode is sponsored by Torrens University, Australia's international university. If you look at the, the student visa statistics uh, in the Department of Education for this year, uh, and it only goes back 20 years, so they only set a 20-year benchmark and right now, year to date, we are lower in, as at March 2022 than we were in terms of student commencements back in March 2002. So 20 years of successive growth has impacted, uh, has been lost within that two year period. This and more in this new episode of the ISEF podcast. Your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda. And indeed, for the main topic in this month's ISF podcast, we celebrate the border reopenings for international students in the two major study destinations in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia and New Zealand. We discuss the significance of these border reopenings and the future outlook for both destinations in front of a live audience at ISAF ANZA, the main networking event for Australia and New Zealand-focused student recruitment professionals, together with Brad Blacker, CEO at English Australia, and Geneviève Rousseau-Kung, Partnerships Manager at Education New Zealand. In our Keys to the Market section, at the end of this episode, we take a look at Bangladesh, one of the most important emerging markets for study abroad in South Asia. And as always, we start our podcast with a brief look at recent news and developments in our industry together with Craig Riggs, Editor-in-Chief of ISAF Monitor. Good day, Craig. Good day, Martin. How are you? Your accent sounds fantastic. I learned a bit here in, uh, in, in Adelaide. In Adelaide, actually, uh, Craig, we get a lot of questions uh, of our colleagues about the outlook for, for China which of course is such an important sending market for Australia and New Zealand and has mm-hmm. been an important driver of global growth in international student mobility for, for decades now. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about this one. The new an- analysis argues that key demand drivers for Chinese outbound are weakening with the end result that the number of Chinese students going abroad will peak and possibly decline within the next five years. Yeah, some really interesting number crunching in this paper from uh, an international consultancy called Oliver Wyman. They're uh, an international consulting group. Part of their practice is in Shanghai, and they have a division that's particularly concerned with education. And so we're we're interested in what they have to say on the subject. And as you say, China has been absolutely a driver of overall growth in international student mobility for, for decades now. And for the world's major study destinations, the top four destinations in particular, Australia, the UK, the US, Canada, China remains a very significant proportion of total foreign enrollment. But it's also been a source of some unease for our colleagues uh, across the industry for some time now, because growth in Chinese outbound has been slowing uh, noticeably for some time leading up to the pandemic. And the anecdotal reports that we're getting this year and the early numbers that we can see for 21 suggest that uh, those numbers are not rebounding from China as quickly as they are from other important sending markets. And so there's definitely some, as I say, unease in the marketplace in terms of what the sort of medium or longer term outlook is for China. And as you mentioned in in your opening remarks, the headline from this Oliver Wyman study is that they're expecting the number of outbound Chinese students to peak 
within the next five years. And after that point to flatten and, and even slowly decline, right? So that's a very different outlook for this important market that's been such a driver of growth for, for so long. When you say peaks, what, what kind of number should we think of? Really, their projections are based on pre-pandemic numbers, right? And so it's it's they're projecting a little bit around the pandemic, but they're just saying that the when you measure the volume of outbound students against the you know as a both in, in absolute numbers and as a proportion of college age uh, population in China, and you look at what else is happening in China at the same time in terms of growth of uh, tertiary education capacity, the strength of the Chinese economy, and what they describe as a kind of erosion in the premium that has historically been available for students that are coming back with overseas degrees, right? It used to be that in China, you would come back with an overseas degree, uh, particularly from a noted university, and you would have, you could expect, you know, additional doors to be open to you and to command a higher salary than you otherwise would, right? And what they're pointing out is that that, that premium, that gap between domestic degrees and overseas degrees is eroding. And what that reflects, as much as anything, is the continuing strengthening of domestic higher education in China. I mean, I, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that what we've observed in China over the last, you know, say 15 years, a little bit more, is, is got to be the biggest expansion in higher education in the history of the world. I mean, just the number of university seats that have been created and beyond the sheer capacity of the system have been the very significant investments in building the quality of that top tier of Chinese institutions in particular. And you can see it in international rankings, like we've been tracking this for years. We now see like in the, in the major rankings, like the QS ranking, uh, Times Higher Education, the Shanghai ranking, that you can see the numbers of Chinese institutions in the top 100, top 200 ranked institutions in the world increasing quite quickly. And what that opens up is, you know, an entirely new type of possibility where students can pursue a very prestigious, high quality education at home and tie into, you know, some of the tremendous career opportunities in the Chinese market. There's a real momentum there towards strengthening the prestige of domestic degrees. Yeah, that's, of course, all very positive, but currently only interesting for domestic students indeed since the Chinese borders, unfortunately, are still closed for international students. So Chinese institutions can't compete at the moment with their counterparts in other important destination markets. Which brings me to the next item is when I say important destination markets, this includes countries like France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands, who are steadily claiming a greater share of the world's international students. Craig, would you say that is a temporary development, for example, due to Brexit, closed borders in China and until recently also closed borders in Australia and New Zealand? Oh, no. I think this has been a trend that's been building for some time. I think some of the factors that you've noted are accelerators for that trend. Certainly uh, Brexit, of course, and, and closure of other important study destinations. I mean, Australia's borders and New Zealand's borders has only recently reopened, right? Uh, China's borders, as you point out, are still closed. And so students that would have gone to any of those top tier international study destinations are looking for alternatives, it's fair to say. And, you know, the marketplace has been recast somewhat by the Brexit event. I think all those are levers that are acting on some of the growth that we're seeing across study destinations in Europe. So what are we observing? We're observing that 
the foreign enrollment in many European destinations continues to grow as we move into these latter stages of the pandemic, and certainly has been building for some time now. But I think it's also interesting to look at the composition of that enrollment, because it's quite different from country to country. You know, the UK, for example, relies on uh, quite a bit on China, certainly, but also on markets like India and Pakistan and South Asia, right? And, and then also China and Hong Kong and East Asia. Like, I mean, so those key Asian markets are really important drivers for the UK. In France, perhaps not surprisingly, we see uh, a lot more emphasis on uh, students coming out of French-speaking nations in Africa, right? There's a very strong pattern of student mobility between a number of countries across the African continent moving into higher education in France, right? And that continues to build as well. And then in Germany, certainly we see, you know, important representation from markets like China and India, but just more of a mix beyond that. So more drawing more students from the Middle East, from some African markets, again, as well from elsewhere in Europe. So to your point about is this a temporary phenomenon or is it something else? Yeah. I would say it's something else because, you know, students are being drawn by the reputation and quality of higher education in, in all of these countries. Um, but also by, you know, the relative affordability of many of these destinations, the employment opportunities, the post-study work opportunities that are available in many of them, you know, many of these destinations are quite well positioned to draw larger numbers of students still. And in fact, in some, like the Netherlands, one of the examples that you mentioned, you know, they're, they're already really straining under the, the, the growth in international enrollment that they've been seeing over the last few years to a point where, you know, the, it feels like the capacity of that country to accommodate students on campus and in student housing and everything else is starting to get strained a little bit, right? There's been right. calls for cap, caps on international enrollment this, this year, yeah. for example. Yeah, no, so true. A couple of things here. I think it, it, it just comes to show that diversification is really so important, right? So any country that was extremely dependent on just China, for example, then well, they're a bit of trouble now, I guess. But diversification mm -hmm. strategies would def definitely help keep the students coming in and uh, including countries like Bangladesh, which we'll discuss uh, later in this in this episode. Mm -hmm. But also the we indeed, I mean, you know, I'm from the Netherlands and it's indeed true that there is a, there seems to be a, a maximum capacity to be reached, which probably is good news for our friends here in Australia and New Zealand, uh, where there is lots of room for growth and where the borders have reopened and are reopening. So that's what we we'll discuss now for the main topic. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we look at two study destinations which are back in the game, Australia and New Zealand. Hi everyone, welcome back. It's, um, it's genuinely great to be here at uh, ISAF ANZA here in Adelaide, South Australia. It's great to see you live here in the floor, but also through the uh, live stream. And uh, my name is Martijn van der Veen. I'm the Vice President of Business Development here at ISEF. And the title of our next session is Study Destinations, Australia and New Zealand back in the game. And I'm sure you'll all agree that you are indeed back in the game. But we believe that the whole world should know this. Any student recruitment professional around the world, in all corners of the world, should know that Australia and New Zealand are back in the game. So we are also recording this session live here for our next podcast. So um, I'm in great company, especially for this topic, because with me are Geneviève Rousseau-Kung, Partnerships Manager at Education New Zealand, and Brad Blacker, CEO of English Australia. A warm welcome to you both, all 
eyes, cameras, microphones are on you for the next uh, 30 minutes or so, so no pressure. So how about we start with a little uh, introduction first, Genevieve? Yes. Uh, hi everyone, tēnā koutou katoa, ko stonam te monga, ko Saint Laurent te awa, ko Rousseau me kong na iwi fano, no Canada aho, ko ke manapoki te ao o e mahihana, ko Genevieve toku ingoa, no reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Kia ora, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a little uh, introduction in, in te reo Māori, so a mihi, a little introduction to acknowledge uh, the public, the people who are listening to, to me, to us. And uh, this is an integral part of the culture in New Zealand, um, as you will um, discover today in my session. So I'm the Partnership Manager at Education New Zealand, which is the lead government agency that promotes um, New Zealand as a study destination. I'm also the International Market Manager for Latin America. So I'm very pleased to be here tonight and very pleased to be on the panel. So thank you for having me. Merci Geneviève. I don't get further than French, but that was very impressive. Brett, the bar is high. G'day. <laughs> Righto, we got that out of the way. No. Um, hello, everyone. I, I guess in, in a beautiful welcome and, and such a lovely language. Um, in, in starting mine, I would actually like to acknowledge the Indigenous custodians of this land, um, which we are on pond today. Um, our traditional custodians, the Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, um, I pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. And um, you know, we, we honour their great story and, and that, that is, is ahead of us. So just very briefly, I'm Brett Blacker and uh, as noted, CEO of English Australia. I've got the pleasure here today also representing our colleagues from Austrade who were going to, to be on the panel, but um, unfortunately just due to another circumstance couldn't be here. So I'll do my best today to provide an update just on things that are happening across the Australian context, um, not just from uh, the English language sector, but more broadly in terms of Australia's reopening as well. Thank you very much, Brad. Now, Australia and New Zealand have, of course, been faced with some of the world's toughest COVID restrictions and the uh, border closures that lasted longer than any other major study destination. Now, that's nothing new for you, but also for our global audience. Can you give us a brief overview or a summary of your government's responses to COVID and how it impacted schools, agencies and, of course, international students in particular? And let's start with Australia, Brad. Yeah, thank you. Well, we certainly can't underestimate the impact on, on everyone across that whole chain. Australia, indeed, was one of the first nations to, to really go hard against COVID. And, and um, at the closure of our borders back in March 2020, uh, at the time, uh, the US had just also triggered sanctions and or triggered um, border closures. And um, many looked at Australia and we were sort of, I guess, concerned about what was going to happen over the next few months. And, and it was all these temporary measures that, that were put in place. Um, indeed, at that time, um, and, and in the months post the borders closures, um, Australia was one of the global leaders in managing COVID-19. And in fact, our infection rate was, was world-class and it was being held up as the, the policies of border closure in terms of uh, a domestic Australian's health setting were acknowledged um, by many global counterparts as, as some of the best at the time when, when COVID-19 was, was obviously spreading um, you know, very significantly in other jurisdictions. Um, we saw some probably positive advancements at the time in terms of, on a national setting, um, establishment of a, a national cabinet, 
to allow our state and territory agencies to look at a, a concerted national response to, to COVID-19. And in many ways, whilst the, the message was particularly unwelcoming uh, to our international partners and, and international students, something that you know, we're indeed sorry for, um, the way in which the initial management was, was in, in, seems to had, had a lot of respect. Um, our issue obviously was the duration and, and the way in which we were able to then uh, implement a vaccination strategy. Uh, and the vaccination strategy indeed prolonged our ability for international borders to, to be reopened. Um, we, in terms of our sector's uh, performance, um, you know, it, it's in many ways wiped off um, generations of, of hard work and support. And, and just to put that into context, if you look at the, the student visa statistics uh, Department of Education for this year, uh, and it only goes back 20 years, so they only set a 20-year 20, 20 benchmark. And right now, year to date, we are lower in, as at March 2022 than we were in terms of student commencements back in March 2002. So 20 years of successive growth has impacted, uh, has been lost within that two-year period. And within that chain, obviously, schools uh, have been significantly impacted. Likewise, we respect that our agent community has, has equally been impacted on that. That's a very detailed impression of everything that's happened in Australia. But of course, it's, you know, I'm sure you could go on and on and on because it's been a long time with many measures. And I find it very interesting how you explain that it started off with the world looking at Australia with respect and saying, hey, this is the country that treats this uh, serious situation with the, with the approach that is needed. And it will probably increase your appeal as a study destination. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit more about that as well. But first, let's go also to New Zealand on the New Zealand initial response to COVID and probably even a bit more se severe than uh, Australia. Genevieve. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, we all know that the last two years have been um, very challenging for everyone in the international sector, international education sector, um, both professionally but also personally. Um, agents have been um, uh, incredibly affected and in New Zealand, of course, with our borders closed, it has been a, a unique situation for us and for everyone. But I think I want to focus on what we've been doing during that time to really um, to, to support and help um, the sector. And, and internationally as well. So we've been we've um, we've been incredibly active at ENZ to maintain a global presence, and that's um, thanks a lot to our offshore team. So we've um, we've haven't closed any offices um, offshore. So we've remained open everywhere in our markets, and our team have been working really hard to uh, maintain a global presence. We've continued to do some partnerships and um, attending and sponsoring um, conferences and attending online events. Uh, we've been conducting masterclasses and online student exchanges and um, promotion of, of education in general. So, um, and more specifically for agents, we, um, we have been uh, continuing to uh, be in touch with them to keep that communication going and that engagement going. Again, thanks a lot to our offshore teams in various markets that we have. Uh, we have a dedicated platform for agents, so um, uh, Agent Lab, so that has been very useful and a, a one-stop shop for agents to, to go and get some information and get some tools and resources. We've been running numerous agent webinars, um, a lot of them with my colleague Celia here from uh, Immigration New Zealand to make sure that uh, agents were um, up to date with all the latest development. And we've been also supporting financially some of our uh, recognised agencies as well, overseas through um, application process, but we've had uh, lots of campaigns and online events that we've been supporting them. 
Um, and um, finally, we've been also trying as much as we can to recognize their hard work as we value agents. So um, it's just keeping, lots of activity keeping, there. Yes, yeah. yes, and keeping that, um, that visibility and keeping New Zealand top of mind was really. I noticed also the uh, change of the official message for study in New Zealand became study with, with New Zealand. Can yes. you explain a little bit about that, that approach? Yes, that, that means that study in New Zealand really um, at high level means that students are coming in, inbound, so they're coming to New Zealand, but now we've obviously open up to, um, to delivering offshore and, and uh, offering a, a whole lot of a, a various ways of, of, of educating students and, and giving them an experience of New Zealand um, offshore as well. So, Great. Yes. So Brett, at last year's Australian International Education Conference, AIEC, an often heard theme was to recover, but to recover better by reflecting on the lessons learned during the uh, pandemic. So which are some of those um, lessons and which initiatives can we expect for the Australian international student recruitment industry to recover better, as, uh, as I said? Yeah. Um, recover better, I think, is a, is a good motto. And um, I, I do think we need to recognise um, during this time, uh, you know, we as providers, peak bodies, education agents, um, you know, we, we've had a really tough road. But... You know, for me, I, I would suggest that the student, um, you know, that, that student-centred approach was something that was really borne out. Um, not that I would suggest it was previously forgotten, but in this time, and, and, and I referenced some of the actions that happened on a federal level um, when, when our borders closed, and, and they're important to, to reflect on, on what transpired on a federal level. But what we did see was a a reaction and a level of support from our state governments and, and state and territory governments that provided immense support for international student communities. Um, for example, the New South Wales government offered $20 million in accommodation support scholarships you know, for about 6,500 students. The, the, the um, Victorian government offered over a million dollars in free food um, and you know, food vouchers so that students and the student welfare was at the heart of it. And you know, I, I could give examples from, from each of our states and territories. But as we looked and, and we recast Australia's strategy for international education, student at the centre became that new um, mantra for, for the approach. So um, I would suggest that as we move forward, and, and you know, we're in a, a period now where we have a, a new federal government, and um, within that remit, I, I already hear that narrative of, of ensuring policies and initiatives keep the student at the centre of that approach. And I think that's a really important message so and learning. Do you feel that that was not done enough before COVID? I, I, I think that we've always, maybe the narrative for Australia, um, you know, Australia has traditionally been one of the world leaders in international education. Um, I mean, look at it in English language. Uh, we've always been in the top two or three in terms of global destinations to teach English language. Last year, in terms of the number and volume of student weeks, Australia was number one, sorry, in, in 2020, I should say, the number one destination of stu teaching students in English language. So I think in that narrative, historically, we've looked at you know, the destination being of great value, and we should recognise the beaches, the beautiful landscapes, the, you know, the opportunities to come work, live, um, you know, study at the same time. But knowing that, I think that in now when we move forward, it's not just about the economic impact and those other ways in which you know, 
as, as such a, a, a valuable part of our economy, I think we do, we will take that lesson of, of student-centeredness further. I always think it's a beautiful goal, uh, putting the student at the centre, and I think we will all say, yes, the student should be uh, at the centre, and we go for more quality and less quantity, but in the end, we're a commercial industry where numbers do matter. Is, 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 do you reflect that uh, new approach or a new change approach to go more for quality than quantity or trying to combine both in this post-COVID world? No, it's absolutely one of the, um, the directions that our government is taking the as quality? well. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, um, and to, to echo what um, Brett said, our government is strongly uh, supporting the international education sector as well. And I think for us, the best example is, um, is the recent uh, visits from our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, that um, she just went to Asia, to Singapore and Japan, and it was her first overseas trip since pre-pandemic. And um, there were several activities that were conducted there in, um, in international education, so that's very, very uh, positive. And also it was her first trip? Her first trip. And that was for international education? That was, um, there was three main activities that were for right. international education during her short trip. So, yeah. um, and, then, um, and then we had our uh, minister, our minister of education, Chris Hipkins, who just came back um, last week from a, uh, leading a, an education delegation in the Americas. So he went first to NAFSA in Denver, in Colorado, uh, where he opened the plenary session and uh, launched the, our new global campaign that I will talk about a bit later, um, as well as um, being there for the launch of the Tipukinga International Strategy. And he did lots of visits there in international education. And then he moved to, uh, he went to Brazil and Chile as well. So um, did a lot of uh, meetings and educations as well, met with uh, agents, met with alumni, took part of, of different events. So that's, that's probably the best example and the best sign that uh, the government is supporting highly um, our sector at the moment and it's one of the priorities. Yeah, I think it, it, it might take away some of the frustration. I mean, I think that must have been quite a bit of frustration in the industry of how governments responded because, of course, we all want borders to be open and students to find a way to uh, go overseas. And there are suggestions made from the industry, but, you know, no, not always welcomed by governments. And now we see these governments so responsive. Does that take away the frustration or does there some uh, bad feelings towards the government? I think there's always <laughs> all sorts of <laughs> yeah. reactions. And, yeah, but the sector... We're looking to the future now. Yeah, I think uh, talking about the sector and more the industry, um, uh, we we work very closely with the industry as well. So um, we're never working in isolation from them, but yeah. working together and um, involving them in, in everything we do in decision important decision making. For instance, we have our uh, New Zealand international strategy at the moment, uh, strategy, international education strategy being reviewed, and um, there's a public consultation at the moment until the end of the month. So the industry is uh, invited to, uh, to put their, um, their words, so um, it's very important. They've been, the, the, um, our sector has been also involved in the cohorts, so the student cohorts, we've probably heard, we've had um, four student cohorts uh, exemptions. While our borders were officially closed, we had students still being able to come and start their studies uh, on a, an exception basis, so the, the sector has been super involved in that in the application process selection and obviously welcoming those students back to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, so very involved in general. Um, Great to see the governments so involved. Of course, it's, it's a big industry. It's important for any economy in every country, for, for jobs, for the future, uh, for, uh, for your contribution in many uh, respects. Now, Brad, with borders now reopened, reopening, uh, which are now the main USPs to study on Australia and later New Zealand as well, compared to some of the other main study destinations, such as Canada, the UK and the US? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'm not sure if the, the USPs have, have 
evolved or changed dramatically. Um, you know, I certainly acknowledge the... You still have the, your beaches? We still have the beautiful beaches. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we do need to acknowledge that, you know, des- destinations like Canada in particular um, have, have, have been very successful over this period in, in retaining and keeping their borders open or largely open during that time. And as a, as a representative of our industry working with the Australian government, it's something we remind them of, you know, consistently. Um, we're, not, we're not starting at a, an even keel. We're, we're starting behind the eight ball in, in some respects. So um, it's time now that even whilst the borders have reopened, um, I don't think we can just suggest that, you know, students will start flooding back in. Uh, and we've seen it sort of mixed, mixed modes. Certainly um, visas uh, and, and the visa lodgement um, pipeline at the moment is strong. Um, indeed, stronger than pre-pandemic levels in, in most sectors. Visa grant rates, not as strong, and that's something that we need to make sure we work closely with, with our government on. Um, but there are, others, there are other factors that I think in terms of the, the USPs where um, we need to be really careful in how we manage the, the expectations of students. Um, and, and specifically, I, I think it's worth referencing work rights, for example. So work rights at the, this stage, and one of the maybe key lessons or, or outtakes of the past two years was um, as an industry, as an international education industry, we sort of historically felt like we did all this wonderful work and promotion and we supported you know, the, the Australian economy and education institutions, but other parts of the economy didn't recognise what we do. You know, it was like we did it all and you know, the, the, the business community didn't know that international education or, or others existed. What was telling over the, the past two years was the impact that our student community has on broader elements of community. So, so be that in an employment setting, you know, be that in accommodation settings and, and others. And the voices that probably had more significant impact than some of our own lobbying were those of the business community in, in Australia. And we've seen that by virtue of some of the, the, the relaxation and obviously at the moment the extension of, of temporary work rights to an you know, um, unlimited view. So I think we need to be careful how we manage some of those USPs, um, whether people are attached to, to coming un, in unlimited work rights and, and the expectations that some of these temporary settings may set. Um, but on the back side of it, I think we also need to then start to better leverage these relationships we have with other elements of our communities and, and work in a more integrated way, interconnected. Interesting. So you see there's also an increased awareness of the importance of the international education industry, not just with the government, but also with other industries and other stakeholders yeah. that wasn't there really before COVID. Absolutely. And, and I think it, it's... Perhaps the awareness was there, but it wasn't vocalised. People weren't actually noting all of the other um, implicit or real value that international education was playing. And, and again, I don't want to move too far from that student-centred approach, but having these allies and having these supporters is, is really valuable for us as, as a sector and, and how we support students. And, the, and a lot of these allies are, of course, also the student recruitment agencies. 100%. Same for New Zealand, I imagine. Yeah, and I think New Zealand has a very distinctive brand in the sense that we have a unique culture, B culture, and so um, we can't go without talking about the Te Ao Māori um, 
and that's integrated in everything we do in, in, in our culture, everyday culture. And um, a very good example is our um, latest global campaign that we've launched. Um, this, is, um, this is basically um, highlighting eight international students who've created a gaunt, so a, a garb, a um, um, graduation gaunt, um, garments, kakapu, in, mm -hmm. in Maori, and um, with the help of um, um, uh, Kiri Nathan, a Maori fashion designer. And through that gone, they've designed um, what represent for them their New Zealand student experience, but also mixing their own culture and explaining their um, cultural journey uh, while they were studying in our country. And it's very, very beautiful. It really uh, features all our values and our, um, our specific themes in New Zealand, some Maori uh, values such as manakitanga, which is the care of people, and kaitiakitanga, the care of place. And this is all really, um, uh, it's featured in the, in the, the um, the global campaign, so I really encourage you to have a look at that. Um, and um, the waving of all the, 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 the gone as well is uh, a mix of both culture and, and student experience. So really, really reflects what is unique, the uniqueness of the a New Zealand education. Um, student, uh, talking about student experience as well, that's something that is very important and unique to New Zealand. We've been the first country to have a code of practice for the pastoral care of international students, which really um, it's, it focuses on uh, ensuring their well-being and their safety. So that's important. something as well that we're really proud of and that's really important. Putting student at the centre, yes, for example. Yes, at the centre. Um, and um, New Zealand is also leading the way in global citizenship, so we're really proud of that. We uh, partner with Massey University and AFS, and we have a global competence uh, certificate program. Uh, we've had uh, close to a, a thousand students graduating from that, and that really develops their um, cultural self-awareness, um, their emotional resilience, and also it, it kind of like um, kind of bridge, build bridges between the culture, the, the two different cultures yeah, for international yeah. students. So, um, oh, great. It's good to see New Zealand leading the way, because I remember the title is, of course, Australia and New Zealand back in the game. Now, in New Zealand, the borders are reopening. So I was going to say maybe you're not yet completely back in the game, but it sounds like you fully are, uh, yes. as is Australia, of course. Uh, how is that with the borders reopened? Everything? Which, which remaining restrictions, if any, are still in place uh, that uh, agencies and, um, and other industry partners should be aware of for Australia and the same later for us? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, there, there, I mean, in terms of access to, to arrival in Australia, there aren't any border restrictions in place. Um, we had all of uh, our state-based borders you know, reopen. Um, you know, our, our good colleagues from, from West Australia were our, our last providers to, as a destination to come online. But in saying that, we, we, you know, we've seen each of our different jurisdictions um, throughout the past you know, two years working incredibly hard to try and bring students back, you know, be it through pilot programs that were operating in New South Wales and then subsequently in Victoria, um, be it through the support of Study Perth to, to bring 26 of their partner schools here today to be at this agent event, you know, and, and, you know, and recently committed over $40 million to try and revive the, the, the sector and, and international education uh, in Western Australia. So, the, I mean, there aren't any restrictions in play, um, you know, in terms of why uh, a student wouldn't be able to come. And, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of demonstration over the past two years around the commitment for our providers. Um, I mean, we, you know, English Australia as well, supported um, the, um, administration of a number of government um, schemes, uh, including the Innovation Fund, and those programs have provided grants um, for providers to move their programs online. 
and in many ways they've supported students to continue to study. Um, that's, that was over $18 million worth of federal funding to support education institutions to be able to deliver courses online. So, you know, I think we've seen various elements of um, assistance and support which have kept our, the vast majority of our providers operating and therefore we are like certainly open for business now. Um, and borders are open, schools are ready to go, schools are, you know, in, in many cases, I know some schools which are, are already looking towards the back end of this year and, and need more capacity. You know, it's not the same for everyone, but definitely we are, we are seeing you know, many green shoots come through. But it's of course very reassuring huh, to see the, the millions of dollars flying across the table here, all invested in the end in, in, in education, in mm. international education. So I would say the future is quite bright from that perspective, and that is, of course, a tailwind for us in recovering from this uh, pandemic. Genevieve, which remaining, apart from the borders still being reopened, which other remaining restrictions, if any, will still remain in uh, New Zealand? All I can say is that we're reopening to all on the 31st yeah. of July, and we're really excited about it and looking forward to welcoming all students uh, then. And, and there's a few um, New Zealand institutions in the in the room, and I'm sure they're they're really, really excited as well to get... Um, to get students back in the country. And, Wonderful. Yes. Now, 30 minutes is, of course, a very short uh, time frame to cover the reopening or the, the, the fact that Australia and New Zealand are back in the game. Um, but what, um, as a last question, what does that game look now, right? How, how different is that game? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the fundamentals will, will be the same, but um, in, in some ways, you know, again, coming back to that student at the centre, you know, health conditions, how we're supporting our students through each stage of the journey, it's not new, but it is certainly a heightened hierarchical need at the moment in terms of student welfare and support. Um, interestingly, you know, we had our Australian government launch its first ever Global Agent Week in December 2021. So here we were, you know, with just coming out of the, the pandemic and Austrade hosted 2,800 agents from 55 different countries. They've recently launched the Global Agent Hub, Education Agent Hub, with resources targeting agents and, and support materials. So as we've come through the most difficult period, again, I, I've referenced different um, elements of support for students and providers to get through. You know, I am seeing this, this shift in terms of the way in which not just providers in terms of you know, wanting to get back and, and, and work closely with their agents, but also our, our key um, government agency in trade and development, Austrade, you know, launching a number of specific targeted initiatives to support agents and that student recruitment channel. Yeah, wonderful. Anything you'd like to add, Jennifer? Well, I think it's just reiterating um, that we have a very distinctive brand, so we'll have, I think that's where we have to focus uh, for New Zealand anyway, um, our unique uh, culture, and that's what will really make a difference um, in leveraging on the um, current um, strong government support to the sector as well. Sounds great. I think a good game requires good players yes. and great supporters, so I think we're all that in this room and around us. Thank you very much for your insights on Australia and New Zealand being back in the game. Game, set and match for now. But you will both, of course, be here for the next uh, two days, at least, I hope. Uh, so for anyone that has questions for Genevieve or Brett, uh, please go and see uh, your colleagues at their booths or tables. And for the viewers uh, online or those listening to the podcast, if you have any questions for Genevieve or Brett, then please email us at podcast at and we'll make sure to either connect you or answer your questions yourself. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, our final section, Keys to the Market, with a focus on Bangladesh. But first, an interview with our sponsor from Torrens University. Welcome, Mark Flavo, Senior Vice President International of Torrens University. Thank you for joining the podcast. You're very welcome. So, Mark, as we discussed earlier, Australia is clearly back in the game. Mm -hmm. And um, with Torrens University as one of its main players, welcoming back thousands of international students to your campuses across Australia. What is it that makes Torrance so welcoming and appealing to international students? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm sure you have a good answer. Uh, look, I, I think we, you know, we embrace internationality. We embrace global citizenship. We have students from 115 different countries. And we'd like to think of ourselves as Australia's international university. So with campuses, as you mentioned, in, in uh, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, what we do differently, I think, to most other universities is it's that it's that global approach, but on a very personal scale. So rather than being a class, if, if you're studying face-to-face, -face, yeah. 400 students, you have 25 or 30 in a class. So it's, it's far more personalized. I think that, that as an international student, you know, what we, what we aim to do in all of our, our courses is also that work integrated learning. So you get immersed in Australian culture, the workplace culture, the ability to then, because it's so important for students to be able yeah. to study work while they're studying and then potentially to, to work and stay in Australia afterwards, you know, we embrace that and that's something that, that we encourage our students to be able to choose a career, that's something that will choose a study course that will put them on the path to a career that they'll, that they'll love and end up doing um, forever. I mean, look, again, everyone says that, but I think once you start looking at, at the fact that our graduate outcomes are, you know, we had this at the, at the event last night, you know, Torrens is, is second for international student employability. If you look at our post for undergraduate students, yeah. postgraduate students' median salaries are in the you know, top five of all universities in Australia. In the end, it's not just the, the qualification that you're paying a lot of money for, um, but it's the job that you get at the end. It's and the so future opportunity, hundred percent. And so, no matter where you're from, and also not all of our students come to Australia. We have students studying offshore online. We have students yeah. in New Zealand. We have students in China. Papua all options are possible. Exactly. And in the end, what you're really investing us with or investing your, your, your money or your, yeah. your parents in the future is uh, the ability to, to use your qualification to be able to get maybe a better life for yourself or your family and, and, and those that you care about at the end. And I think that for international students, that decision is, is probably more, more difficult, right? You're overseas. What's this university going to be like? What's this destination yeah. going to be like? Are they going to look after me? I'm biased, but yeah, and you look after them very well. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that I, I know that we do, yeah. but I think any of our metrics around international students, retention, satisfaction, employability, uh, what happens at the end when they, when they graduate, I, I would highly recommend that. So I can imagine <laughs> that a lot of your students come via word of mouth because it's a, yes. it's a great experience, yes, but yeah. agents definitely, of course, play an important role there. Where do you get most of your students from? Which agent market? Look, I, I know there's lots of, of uh, hypotheses around, you know, the agent market changing and people choosing uh, to go online to, to you know, select a course. I still think if you're paying fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars, my own personal opinion, for a very long time, if not forever, you're going to go into a physical office. You want to see 
the options. You want to talk to someone. You need advice. And, and you need a person. You know, and it, people still go to a travel agency. Yeah. Not if they're booking a flight from Sydney yeah. to Melbourne, but yeah. if they're going to go on a cruise overseas yeah. and then you want to talk about what's your health options, well, what's your visas. Yeah. Where's, and so I don't think that that world, and I might be in the minority actually of, of, of agencies yeah. uh, recruiting students on behalf of institutions, I don't think that's going to change for quite some time because of that. Yeah. Depends, yeah. In, depends on what you're going to study. Our agent partners have got us to where we are today. Yep. They've entrusted their clients with us, and we've entrusted our <laughs> our, 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 our business in a way with them. And so it's mutually beneficial. But these are once in a lifetime decisions. hundred Where you need some personal feedback mm. from specialists mm. and consultants. Mm. So I would fully mm. agree with that. Of and, course. And also, if a student has a challenge or a question, they can go back to their agent. Yeah. And vice versa. And the family. A hundred percent. And so yeah. you know with events like us, if you get to meet the agents, they, they're the ones that are selling your institution to, to who will end up being your prospective and, and hopefully full-time students. Yeah, so yeah, without yeah. them, we, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. For those that are listening and you'd like to have more information about Torrance University, please visit torrance.edu.au or send an email to study at torrance.edu.au. Thank you very much, Mark. You're very welcome. And now, in the final section of this episode, we look at keys to the market. And this month, we focus on Bangladesh. Bangladesh, whose direct neighbours are India and Myanmar, is comparable in size with a country like Greece or the state of Iowa. But at the same time, it's the eighth most populated country in the world with more inhabitants than countries like Mexico or Japan. 168 million Bangladeshi this year which I imagine, Craig, means a rapidly expanding pool for international student recruitment. Well, exactly. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons we see Bangladesh as an important growth market in South Asia. It's, I mean, you know, what are the the basic characteristics of a growth market? It, It has a large population. And for purposes of international education, it has a large youthful population. And so not only is Bangladesh the, the eighth most populous country in the world, as you say, but roughly half of that population is under the age of 24. Right. So that's, there's a very, very, very large pool of college age students there. And that's reflected in the growth and outbound mobility that we've been tracking at Bangladesh now for the last better part of the last 10 years. I guess, Craig, that for students from Bangladesh, it is increasingly attractive to choose China as their preferred study destination. When borders are open, that is, as it's geographically much nearer than any of the other top study destinations. The UK, for instance, which historically attracts lots of Bangladeshi. Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, it's um, Bangladesh is an interesting market. I think this is true of markets across, across South Asia, actually, is that you're going to see large numbers of students going from markets like Bangladesh to some of the traditional leading study destinations. So to uh, the U.S., it's actually the U.S. that has been more the historical, uh, historically dominant uh, destination as far as Bangladeshi students are concerned. But, uh, but so students going to the U.S., for example, uh, laterally to Canada as well, uh, but also large numbers choosing, you know, what we would, you know, characterize as regional destinations. So certainly Malaysia among them, China, as you say, among them as well. One of the interesting things about the Bangladesh market is that it's, the students are fairly well distributed across a larger field of study destinations than we typically see for uh, you know early stage growth markets like this. So you know these are students that are looking for opportunities. They're motivated 
by uh, factors of affordability and proximity, certainly, uh, but also opportunities to uh, for post-study uh, work uh, after their after their graduation. And so those are all really important factors, I think, when it comes to, to recruiting in Bangladesh. Bangladesh seems to me like a no-brainer for institutions to focus on, or at least to consider for their recruitment strategy, their diversification strategy, or is Bangladesh still a bit of a hidden gem? I think Bangladesh is, is a little bit off the radar for many recruiters. Um, and I'm there's something that I read several years ago now, and it was a study from Boston Consulting Group talking about the burgeoning consumer market in Bangladesh. And they called it, it was something like Bangladesh, the surging consumer market that nobody saw coming, basically was the name of the paper. And that really says it all. It's a bit of a sleeper market. It's not really, you know, it doesn't factor a lot in people's international mission plans or, uh, you know, priority markets for recruitment. But here we have this very strong surging growth market. Part of that surge is driven by those population factors that we were talking about earlier. But another part of it is another market characteristic that we always look for, and it's that growth in the middle class. And the middle class in Bangladesh is just exploding. So there are, you know, you, when you if you measure it out in sort of five and ten year increments, the size of that middle class is expanding really, really quickly every five years, let's say. And that means you just have not only do you have a large youthful population, but you have a, a large youthful population with an ever-growing pool of families that can afford to fund studies abroad. And that makes it a really interesting market to pay a little more attention to. Indeed, these factors keep coming back in our keys to the market section, where we, we have been discussing markets like Vietnam, Nigeria, Colombia, and now Bangladesh, all with a rapidly growing middle class combined with a large youth population, ideal countries for recruiters to focus on. Now, for those interested in meeting qualified and carefully screened student recruitment agencies from Bangladesh, you may want to consider attending ISAF South Asia in February next year in Mumbai in India, or of course the industry's global networking event, ISAF Berlin at the end of October this year. You can find information about all our upcoming events via isaf.com events. Thanks, Craig. Um, we meet again next month and thank you all for listening. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. This episode was sponsored by Torrens University, Australia's international university.